0: So tonight, if you've got a piece of paper in front of you, I want to spend a little time tonight um, talking about the mechanics of worship. What I believe prophetically is that, like Gideon, God is shifting us from a place of weakness to a place of valiant warriors. Gideon operated for much of his life as part of God's chosen people, but believing a lie. And the Lord straightened him out. If you don't believe me, check out the story in Judges chapter six and seven, about the life of Gideon, moving us from a place of weakness to, to understanding that in him we are a valiant warrior in Him. And part of being a valiant warrior is a people who understand the value of worship and the importance of worship. There are two aspects, and there's two types of worship. There's bedroom worship and there's battlefield worship. Bedroom and battlefield, about those two terms. Bedroom, say, oh, bedroom, that's a weird word referring to worship, bedroom. Yeah, actually, we're the bride of Christ and there's a level of intimacy that comes in knowing the bridegroom. Worship is to be an intimate experience like we did tonight, right? So it's loving on God in a, in a, in a profoundly intimate way. It's a vital part of worship, the bedroom part. But then there's, always, then there's the battlefield part, right? There's an aspect of worship that's very much battle-oriented, much like when they marched around Jericho and, and, and shouted in worship and the walls came tumbling down. One of the signature guys in Scripture who understood both aspects of worship is King David. This was a man who knew all about intimacy with God, but he also knew what it meant to battle. When you read the book of Psalms, which is nothing more than a hymn book, you can see bedroom worship and you can see battlefield worship. And those are the two components of worship essential to the believer in learning how to do that. I've told you in the past that worship is something that we actually have to learn to do and get better at because we always don't know how to. There's actually Mechanical things involved, things that we can do to grow in our experience of worship. But we first got to ask ourselves a simple question that what, what is worship? What is worship? What is worship all about? How can we get our mind wrapped around what worship is and the heart of worship? The story is told of a little girl that was watching her mom. Prepare a ham for dinner, and she noticed that her mom was getting the ham ready. and And the mom cut off the the end portion of the ham and then put the ham in the in the pot to cook it. And the little girl asked the mom, "said Mom, why did you cut off the end of the ham?" She thought just for a second, "So yeah, I don't really know. I'm I'm kind of curious myself. I'm going to call your grandmother, my mom, and find out." So she called her mom, the little girl's grandmother, and asked her, "Say, hey, Mom, why did?" why do we cut the ham, the end of the ham off before we cook the ham? She said, well, yeah, that's a good question. I don't really know. I, I, I need to call my mom, your grandmother, the, the little girl's great-grandmother that was still alive. I have no idea. I've been doing this for years. I have no idea. So so she called her mom, who was well up in age, in her late 80s, and she said, Mom, why do we cut the ham off at the end? I saw you do that. And she said, well, honey, that's because our pan was so, was so small I had to cut the ham off so it would fit in the pan. So somewhere along the generations, the why got completely lost. It's important to re-ask questions like that to bring us back to truth sometimes so we're not carrying on just traditions that are not grounded in reality. Now, I want you to think about this thought for a second, that worship will drive us to the Word, and the Word will drive us to works. Worship will drive us to the Word, and the Word will drive us to works. I showed you a passage in um, Leviticus chapter 8, and verse number 23. It says, Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Now just get that in your mind for a second. You may have to actually touch your right ear to get it right. On the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the right hand, on his thumb of his right hand and his right big toe of his right foot. Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. It was important to get dad and the kids in. Now notice, where was the first place the blood was applied. Ear, right? What is the ear, what is the ear used for? That's real. so both worship and word speak directly to what? Speaks directly to hearing. It helps us hear. What does the hand and foot speak to? The doing. So there's a natural progression between hearing and doing. They work in sync with each other. So when we think about worship, and it's, it's, it's more than just singing a few songs. When you ask perhaps a typical person, hey, can you tell me what worship is? Find some guy that goes to church. Yeah, I don't worship. That's that thing we do before the preacher preaches, and it's usually two or three songs. And that's the limitation of our definition of worship. What's well, a worship service. We sing two or three songs. That's what worship is. Can I tell you, that's not really what worship is at all. In fact, If folks tend to think that's all worship is and and that process is working through their mind, our idea of a worship service is just two or three songs, where do we end up with that? That means you can actually end up in some very unhealthy places that you can actually then have the worship of worship. You know, that exists today, right? A culture of worship music and all those things are good, but you can actually worship worship because we like the music so much. So how might one know if they are doing this? Because I can tell you, because if our worship is not making us hungry for the Word, now not just the Scriptures, but also the prophetic Word that God speaks to us directly, highly relevant to us. See, There's two aspects of the Word of God, right? There's the Word of God. Inscripturated in the 60 books in the Bible, yes, it drives us to the word, but it also drives us to the desire to hear the prophetic word that's specific to you and specific to me. If that's not what worship is doing, bringing us into this place of hearing, and then in this place of what? Works, then doing, then something is amiss that we just sung a few good songs. I can accomplish the same thing at a Bon Jovi concert sing a few songs, have a great time, and go home. I can accomplish the same thing in a Neil Diamond concert, you know? Sweet Caroline, rah, 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 you know, come on. I, yeah, I had a great time. So it's possible to come to church, sing three or four worship songs, have a great time, and go home and never have worshipped. You say a few good songs, but you've never really worshipped. You sang some songs. There's nothing about singing songs It's worship. Can it be? Yes. But then there's the... The blood being applied to the ear and the word of God being spoken directly to you. For every action is an equal and opposite reaction because if true worship is happening, faith without works is dead, there's going to be something happening in your life to validate your worship was actually legit. So what is worship? Let me operate off of this particular definition by one of my favorite preachers, Ravi Zacharias. And I love how he puts this wording. It's on your paper if you want you can. Follow along. This is what Ravi Zacharias offers as a definition of worship. He says, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is a quickening of conscience by His holiness, nourishment of mind by His truth, purifying of imagination by His beauty, opening of the heart to His love, and the submission of will to His purpose. All this gathered up in adoration which is the greatest of human expressions. I could say amen. We can just go home right now and just meditate on that for the rest of the evening. It's a beautiful definition of what worship is. And so when you hear this, then you begin to see layer upon layer upon layer of, man, this thing that we are called to is worship. And it's a beautiful thing, but it it engages every aspect of us. So let's kind of work through just a, just a couple things tonight as we, as we talk about worship, as we take, you know, it's, it's really okay to look in the mirror every now and then, isn't it? To really kind of look at our own heart. Lord, am I, am I really worshiping or I'm just kind of going through the motions? I think it was Matthew West that wrote a song a number of years back about just going through the motions. because It's so easy for us just to go through the motions, to cut off the piece of the hand without really saying, all right, is this, is this really real in my life? Is this, is this what's happening? So the first aspect of this is the worship injunction. We are called, first and foremost, to be a people of worship. Matthew 4 and verse 8, you remember the account of Jesus going off into the desert to be tempted by the enemy. And the word says, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. It's an interesting passage. We can't unpack all that tonight, but, but Did he really have it to give? Sadly, he did. Right, We know from Ephesians 1 that the devil is the kingdom and power of the air ruling this realm, albeit temporarily, but he very much had it to give. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is the injunction of scripture both Old Testament and New Testament our call is to worship the Lord and that's way more than just singing three songs on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night now we go to the very familiar passage in John chapter 4 Jesus speaking to the woman at the well it's worthy to note here that Jesus did more for women's suffrage than perhaps anybody else Jesus elevated the role of women tremendously study it through scripture it's fascinating that, that he is having this amazing conversation with this Samaritan woman, he says. She says, "Sir," the woman said, "I can see all that you are. You're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem." So she's again. She's she doesn't know what worship is, right? She's thinking about worship is based on. Location Is it on this mountain or is it in Jerusalem? Can I tell you, that's usually where the worship wars happen in church. We're arguing over place. We're arguing over style. We're arguing over, is it here? Is it there? And we just get trapped in that line of thinking. How many of you have been in churches where there's been worship wars? Right? That's not my kind of music. It's too loud. It's too soft. It's too fast. Can't clap. I mean, man, been there, done that, got all the t shirt So, Jesus immediately corrects her wrong thinking and, and, and points her to the truth. He said, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. This is an interesting principle in Scripture. I want you to see real quick. Yet a time is coming and has now come. That we live in a reality that's not yet fully real yet. Paul, throughout his epistles, has this little phrase. He says, already not yet. I'm already experiencing this, but yet not come to the fullness of it. So we're kind of right in the middle. We are experiencing this reality, but we're not enjoying the fullness of it yet. So it is coming but it already is. When true worshipers will worship the Father, what well, we know, in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Spirit with a capital S, not a lower KS. In spirit and in truth. Do we worship God in spirit and in truth? And if we do, that's a good thing because that's what the Father is seeking. He's, he's looking for people to do that, to spot what true worship is. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I want to be who God's looking for. I want to be who God's looking at. And the best way to get in that position is to make sure you, to make sure that I and we are engaged in something thing called true worship. And it's not just singing three songs on a Sunday. So the Greek word for worship here is proscuneo and i can tell you proscuneo doesn't mean three songs so proscuneo literally means to to kiss the hand in reverence and a, a, a kiss of the lips in the hand in reverence. That's how the word was used. A better oriental understanding of the word used during that time, it was the, the actual idea of, of I'm in the presence of somebody so important, I'm going to bow down and I'm going to touch my forehead to the ground. That's how the word was used. So, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful expression of, of profound reverence. So when the translators came across this Greek word called proskuneo, we didn't really have a a word in the English language that conveyed that so well. So we came up with the word worship, which comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, which literally means the condition of being worthy, dignity, glory, distinction, honor, renown. So the word itself, worship, means I am going to ascribe worth to something. I'm going to ascribe value to something, dignity to something, honor to something, renown to something. So if I worship something, that's exactly what I'm doing. So do we worship God in spirit and in truth? In an in a ancient Anglican prayer book, a wedding ceremony is recorded. in you know the wedding ceremonies, right? You're sort of taking the vows, right? With this ring, I thee wed, till death do us part. So this is how the actual vow was worded in this Anglican prayer book. The groom would say, or the bride would say, with my body, I you worship. Isn't that beautiful? With my body, I you worship. What is the groom saying to the bride? What is the bride saying to the groom? That with everything that I am in my physical body, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to ascribe to you worship. What a beautiful thing. thing, That would save a lot of marriages today, wouldn't it? In the way I commit my body to you is a distinct commitment, and there is no one else. The injunction of worship that Jesus reminded the devil of, for you alone, Lord, will I worship you alone. So when we talk worship, it's that level of of, of profound devotion to God that extends way beyond a few songs. Number two, worship is not only our injunction. Worship is our eternal occupation. Now, for those who can barely endure one hour of worship, heaven is going to be a very trying experience for you. All right? Worship is our eternal occupation. You're going to be miserable in heaven unless you learn how to worship now, right? You're going to have to be in a longer transitory state once you get there. i got to figure this thing out. Because Scripture tells us that's all we're going to do when we get to heaven. This is because for many, worship is watched rather than done. I mean, worship is more watch, so you know, and and sometimes the way we even structure our church buildings doesn't really help solve this issue. we got worship up here, and we're down here, and we're enjoying watching them worship. Now, granted, that's a problem of logistics, but it doesn't excuse us from not doing what we're supposed to do. It's not a performance. It's something that we, we we enter into. And once you go from a spectator to a participant, you will long for the worship in heaven one day. It's that idea of taste and see that the Lord is good. Perhaps the reason you don't like worship is because you've never worshiped. You just sang some songs that you maybe didn't like or did like. Because unfortunately in the limitation of worship, if we're just looking through the screen of music, there's no better, there's no more fundamental place where, where personal preference will come out in music tastes, right? Isn't that true, isn't it? If I get in your car right now and I listen to your radio or your playlist, we all have different preferences in music, don't we? I can listen to what my kids are listening to, and I'm saying, dear Lord, you know? And I'm still singing Hosanna Integrity stuff every now and then in the car because I remember all that stuff from the 80s, right? In other words, worship is not built upon personal preference of music. It's much bigger than that. But when you tap into true worship, when you experience true worship, man, you're going you're gonna to want more and more of it, and it's not going to be predicated or built upon styles of music. The Lord taught me this one time. We were visiting um, Michelle's family up in Tennessee who were Church of Christ people. This was back when I knew more than I know now. I had it all figured out. I'd already, I'd already written the Church of Christ people off long ago. They're just New Testament people. They don't have music in their they don't have instruments in their church, and they're just messed up, so just, they don't have a chance. Yeah, that was me, sadly. But we were forced to go to church that day. and oh, I, I'm, So I already made my mind, I'm going to go in this Church of Christ. I'm going to sit down. This is going to be the most horrible religious experience I've ever had. but I'm going to endure it for the glory of God, and I'll, be, I'll walk in there with my flowing train of self-righteousness and pompous attitude, come in and sit down. So we, that was just who I was. So I went in, I was sitting down, not expecting anything. And there's no instruments. How can people worship without instruments? Come on, you've got to be kidding. They're going to sing hymns with, and no instruments. This is going to be horrible. But guess what? Everybody stood up and they started singing hymns. And you know what happened? People were worshiping. And the presence of God filled the room and I felt that tall. And I held my head down and said, God, I am so sorry because you're here. (laughs) You're here. Right? It had nothing to do with the lack of instruments. It had nothing to do with the song that was being sung, but it had everything to do with the majority of the hearts in that room loved Jesus and they were really worshiping him. And God was looking for them and he was with them. And the atmosphere in the room changed. And it was nothing that I liked. I didn't particularly like the song. I didn't like not having instruments, but Jesus was there, and he gave me a nice spanking as I left the door. As I walked out of the street, it was a bam, bam, bam. Taught me something. You see, this 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 is what worship is. It's our eternal occupation, not predicated on your personal preference for music. It transcends that. It's okay to like your favorite stuff, but if your worship is dependent upon a style of music, God help you. What you're doing is not worship. Just go to a Neil Diamond concert and save the air conditioning in the room for somebody else, quite frankly, right? It is true, right? We as the body of Christ must be people who, who, who ascend our understanding of worship way beyond style, that we can worship God wherever we are. I remember climbing a mountain in the hills of the Brazil, a jungle in Brazil going up, and, and we were trying to find a little church that existed up there somewhere. We so were hiking up, hiking up, hiking up. And I remember hearing this racket of banging noises, you know. What's this noise? So we finally, waited, we finally made our way to this little church up on this little mountain. And all it was was basically a lean-to. You had like a hill and a, and a little wood coming out and all that. And there was, a, there was a gathering of maybe like 15 people, maybe 20 or so. And they're there worshiping. They didn't have all the, all the house and pans and pots. And they were doing the, doing the percussion. But, man, they were worshiping God. And I got right in the middle of that, and I said, oh, man, Jesus was so strong in the midst of that awful racket. But God was so present. His anointing eclipsed the lack of tempo. It was amazing, isn't it? Just totally eclipsed it. That does not speak to, yes, we should be excellent in all that we do, but anointing trumps excellence all day long. God was present because his people were worshiping him. It's our eternal occupation. Not built upon music. Number three, worship is the passion for existence. Did you notice the songs that we sang tonight? To worship you, I live. To worship you, I live. I mean, without it, without you, Lord, there's there's no meaning. Without it, I'm not even living. That's why Paul did declare, Lord, it's in you we live and move and have our being. Lord, it's in your presence is what I long for and what I need is our passion for existence. Because the reality is every single human on the planet is going to worship something. It's not a matter of if you're going to worship. It's a matter of what you're going to worship. Because we're all going to worship something. We're all going to attribute honor and dignity and worth and respect to something. The question is, what is it going to be? The Christian is unique because who he is or who we are determines what we do. Our, Our identity determines what we do. Because I am in the image of God... I will not lie. I will not have an overinflated idea of who I am, right? True identity in Christ, true worship then, determines my identity, which determines what I do. But to the contrary, atheist and humanist, what they do determines who they are. Their identity is defined by what they do, not who they are. If I am running around on my wife, then that's okay, because if others are doing it, it must be okay. There's no inward moral compass. We determine our identity by what we do, not who we are. See, a truth is this. This passion of worship is birthed out of a profound sense of loneliness that exists in every single human being on the planet. And and we are out of that loneliness. We are seeking something beyond ourselves. One day, the question was asked Elvis Presley to describe his life. And he responded with one word, alone. Alone, had everything, but yet we know a deep sense of aloneness, which would ultimately end to his death, of course. Man is driving outside himself for some kind of fulfillment, and worship ultimately answers this need inside of each of us. Why do men build altars? Why do we shave our heads? Why do we erect temples? Why do we put red dots on our forehead? Why do we incorporate stuff in weddings and funerals and ceremonies? Why do we lay wreaths at graves? Why do we burn bodies? Why? Because it's something in us, no matter where we're from, is reaching for something outside of us. Mankind is transcendent and able to to think and desire beyond himself, but he needs more than himself can provide, you see. We're able to reach for something outside of ourselves, but when we reach into ourselves to find it, we are left what? Hollow and empty and never satisfied. Ecclesiastes 3.1. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible because it's written by one of the most, one of perhaps the most wealthy man that had, 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 had ever lived who had everything that money could buy, plus, 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 plus. And he indulged himself on all of it and he, and he comes down to the, to, the, to the end of his life and you can read about this. All the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, Vanity of everything under the sun Is vanity. What's vanity mean? Meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless because unless you're looking for something above the sun, that's where you're going to find meaning. See, that's the allegory he's given there. Everything under the sun, everything temporal is meaningless, but you got to look above the sun to find true meaning. David would say it like this. I look under the hill. Where does my help come from? It doesn't come from here. It comes from something up there beyond my own ability to do it. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. I just love this verse. He set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He's put the capacity in us. Now I love science. I love physics. I love quantum physics. Right? I love the subject because Physicist, astrophysicist, those that are in that realm of science are, are, have, this, have this desire to look out beyond and what's making up everything. And there's a famous astrophysicist by the name of Neil deGrasse Tyson, which is a, he's, a, he's a really interesting fellow, atheist, but interesting. And one of the things he points out, and I'm not going to get into all the science and bore you, but it's, a, it's something funny because when you watch these guys talk and teach, they do more to build my faith than perhaps any preacher I've ever heard. Yet they're atheists, but yet they're just building my faith. The more they talk, more they he's an atheist. I say, can't you hear what you're saying, dude? So this is what right. This is what they know now, right? We we understand. I won't bore you with the details, but the known universe that the the, the things that we can see is not what the universe is primarily made of. In fact, they know now, they don't even know what to call it, but we understand now approximately 80% of the known universe that we can look at and see is made of something called dark matter. They don't even know what to call it, but we know it exists by the effects that it's having on space-time. We know that, 80%. And there's something else called dark energy. They don't know what it is, but we know it's there because we can see the results of it. And that comprises, they say, approximately 16%. Of the known universe, now that tells us that 96% of the universe is stuff that we know absolutely nothing about. We don't even know what to call it. We know it exists. What to call it? So everything that we know only speaks to four percent of what we can see. Right? Only four percent. I mean, everything. Everything. The Hubble Space. Everything we see. Everything science. Everything Einstein has delivered. Everything. Newtonian physics has brought, everything that we know only accounts for 4% of the known universe and our our understanding of it. As we look out and we look in to the quantum itself, what atoms are made of and protons and neutrons. And Tyson tells us, he said, said, now that which we know about, the 4% that which we know about produces so many unanswered questions, it can be attributed to 10 to the, 120th power of unanswered questions that we can't figure out what's going on so think about a second so that which we know about is only four percent and of that four percent it is exponential that which we don't understand what does it mean in other words what he's saying here in ecclesiastes he says yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end no one can fathom you know why because everything that we learn every answer we find we discover eight more questions And we answer those eight questions, and each of those questions turn into 20 more questions we can't answer. Do you see what's happening? So everything we know, we know less than we did before we know it. You get it? Think about it for a second. As far as we've come, everything that we know, now we know less than we knew before we knew it. Holy cow. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the earth, His handiwork and the most die-hard atheist, and Tyson's teaching this stuff, and I'm saying, hallelujah, don't you see it? It's, it's, It's a passion to reach beyond what we are to drive for this. It's not just in the stars. This passion, make it more relevant. Some of you aren't into science stuff. I just love it. I eat it all the time. I love it. What's more relevant for all of us, though, is this passion is seen mostly in our drive for meaningful relationships. That's where you really see the passion. When given the choice between hugging your car or child, which one would you pick? some of you may have to think twice about that. But. Would you go out and hug your child or hug your car? You'd hug your child. If your house is burning, your concern is what? Not, not going to grab the Haverty's recliner. It's going to make sure it's not the stuff that's in the house, but who's still in the house, right? We're more concerned not with the stuff, but the who. It's a passion for relationship and love. The most tragic moments of life are not when we lose stuff, but when relationships are severed either by sin or or by death. Those things introduce the greatest tragedies into us. We are desiring this relationship. This is what separates Christian worship. No other form of worship speaks to personal relationships. It's not found with Islam, it's not found with Allah, and it's not found with Buddha. There's no loving God in Hinduism. Take Muslims, for example, comprise so much of the world today and so much in the news. Who knows what the Arabic word for God is? The the Muslim God, what do you call him? Allah, if you're a Christian and you live in Iran, what are you going to call God? Allah. It's the same Arabic word, right? It's both speaking of God. Is it the same God? No, it's how God reveals Himself. See, the, 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 the Allah of Islam is a, is a detached, omnipotent deity. Monotheistic, but detached, supremely sovereign completely in control, not highly relational. Here's my law, do it. That's why Sharia law is so important because I got to follow the law. It's, it's what I need to do. So, so, so Allah of Islam reveals himself in tasks and duty and religion and expectation, dutiful servitude. Allah, who is the Allah of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, That Allah reveals himself as Abba, a completely different understanding of God. See, the Allah Arabic Christians worship is not the Allah of Islam. It's the Allah of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who revealed himself as Abba. Not the distant sovereign God watching from a distance, retaining a tight rein on all of his people, enforcing some law but a God who reaches out and says, I want relationship. You see, in the very nature of the revealed God himself is Abba. It transcends father, it's daddy, it's it's intimacy. See, part of moving to the right understanding of worship is we're not worshiping Allah, we're worshiping Abba, you see. And when you begin worshiping Abba and have that revelation of who we are worshiping, and then all of a sudden, it it does become this intimate experience where there's a bedroom element to worship and then, of course, there's a battlefield because this this Allah is the lion of the tribe of Judah as well. Are you tracking with me? This is the revealed God who we're talking about. Aren't you glad we don't worship Allah? We worship Abba who has come and adopted us and shed the love of God abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. Real quick in these last few minutes. And we, to, to, to view worship, and, and so much of the, of the Old Testament and the New Testament is, is inviting us into this experience of worship. And, and how we see worship clearly is through the tabernacle. In your notes, you can look on the last page, and you're going to see an image of the tabernacle. God gave the vision of the tabernacle to Moses to build as a reflection of what worship looks like. We find out in Hebrews, where did Moses get this information? From the tabernacle where? In heaven, right? So it is a type and a shadow of really what heaven looks like. So when you begin to study the tabernacle, it it, it gives us insight into what happens in worship. Now, I would recommend, it's a great personal study, if any of you are interested, to go through a study of the tabernacle. And you're going to see Jesus everywhere everywhere in the tabernacle. Jesus is, is in every element of Hebraic worship in the tabernacle and the temple. Beautiful study. So when we look at the tabernacle through the lens of a New Testament understanding, which we like, you know, look through the blood of Jesus. It's like that red filter that we look through in the Old Testament. We discover what worship really looks like. And you can leave the tabernacle. And one thing you will notice about the tabernacle that was constructed in the wilderness, there were no like um, exit, exit signs. There's no like fire escapes and stuff. There's only one way in. There was only one gate. One way in. Jesus, John 14, 6, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, true worship is only experienced through Jesus. Everything else is something else. Worship's going on, but it's not the kind of worship we're talking about. It comes through a relationship with Jesus. People are worshiping stuff, but it's not authentic worship in the sense of this is, it's not Christian worship. It comes through Jesus. And at the, at the cross, at this, at this one gate, we, we, we all enter it together. Men, women, children, red and yellow and black and white, socioeconomic, rich and poor, we all come through the exact same gate. There's no back entrance for African-Americans. There's no front entrance for white Caucasians, right? There's no preferential treatment for anybody. What we're finding is, and I'll just say this real quick, is that we are, we're finding that, that one of the keys to revival is to, is to, is to see racial reconciliation happen. Because true, the true obstacles in church today are two things. It is racism and it is religion. And the remedy for racism and religion is reconciliation and revival. Those are the remedies. Reconciliation brings revival. We are first reconciled to God, and then we are able to reconcile with each other. There's no true and lasting reconciliation with any race or any person unless we've first been reconciled to God. The church is the model of this, right? At the cross, we're all one people. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The church is a place for this. In the place of worship, we are all one. There's no hierarchy. Number two, the next thing you come to is this thing called the brazen altar. Worship is sacrifice. This was the largest item in the tabernacle. This was the place where all the the sacrifices that you read about in Leviticus and Numbers that's being built and all the the, the blood that was shed there was, was incredible. A lot of sacrifices going on there. Psalm 27:6 Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his tabernacle. Will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I love this because it contains both sacrifice and joy in the same sentence. Sacrifice may not make you feel good, but it can bring a lot of joy. True and lasting joy. True authentic worship will always be accompanied by sacrifice. David said like this. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house. Anybody remember that song? Right? Right? Oh, Lord, we bring the Sometimes praise and worship is incredibly sacrificial because you're having to thank God in every circumstance and every situation, but I will praise you. The most beautiful worship is that which is offered in the midst of sacrifice and trial as God is capturing the tears and storing them up that you cry. Hebrews 13, 15, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that confess His name. Worship and sacrifice is okay. It's appropriate, right? When you're having a difficult time, yes, that's when we need to worship the most. We don't pull away. We actually draw close. moving quick. Worship is sacrifice, number three, the brazen labor. Worship is cleansing. So you can imagine when you've dealt with a sacrifice, you're kind of bloody and messed up, right? You've got to take a shower. So the next thing you would come to is the brazen laver. Exodus thirty twenty, Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with the water so they will not die. <laughs> the laver was made with beaten bronze. So when they looked over and they began to wash themselves, they began to view themselves. It it exposed the mess. It, ex- it exposed the sin. That was what happened in that moment. It, it created a sense of need for God. It created humility. A critical element in our position of worship produces humility. That's why proskuneo actually means to bow down. It's not to be beaten down. It's to bow down. See, Sharia law under Allah is to beat down. Under Abba, right? It's for us voluntarily to kneel down. See a difference, right? Two completely different. One is an Abba Father, another is a tyrannical God. And that's not who we worship. Entering, then we now we enter into the holy place, another structure that existed within the tabernacle. And again, I'm just glancing over this really fast. In this place, the metal goes from being bronze to being pure gold. You get into this place. This place was constructed. There was the absence of the sun in this area. The only light that was provided was the candlestick. And here we see worship is sacrifice. It is cleaning. But worship is revelation. Because where there is light, there is sight. Where there is sight, there is revelation. John 1, 4 through 5, in him was life, describing Jesus. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. What does light do for you? It helps you see better. Ever got up in the middle of the night? Dark. Try not to wake up everybody. You try to get to the bathroom. You're trying to remember the geography of your furniture. Make some mistakes. Ran into a wall. I've run to walls before. Ran a slap dab into the wall. Oh no, I'm like two feet from the. What does light do? Light brings sight. You see, the revelation that comes in worship is essential for us to navigate this. Remember what I said? Worship brings word. That word is not exclusively scripture, but it's also prophetic. When Jesus breathes on us, he gives us revelation word. He gives us navigation. You see, he is the light. True worship will always involve the light of Jesus in your situation. Just like we need light to navigate in our physical eyes, we need light to navigate with our spiritual eyes. And the only place that light comes from is from who is light. In fact, it is said of Jesus and God that in the day when it all closes, in Revelation 22, it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, the sun itself will end. There will be no more need for natural light because God Himself will be the light of that city. Isn't that awesome? The light of revelation. This is, what we get. this is what we get when we're worshiping. You're actually getting some stuff that you really need to navigate. I get excited. Number five, the table of showbread. Here we see that worship is food. So just across from the candlestick, there were, there were 12 loaves of bread that existed and represented the 12 tribes of Israel. We look back and then we see Jesus once again inextricably tying himself to Old Testament reality because he's communicating to the Jewish people. And he's saying, when you think about the tabernacle, that which you know so well, you're actually seeing me in every element. Jesus in John 6.48 says, I am the bread of life, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. You see, when he said that to those Jewish people, they immediately understood the imagery. We don't get it because we don't understand the tabernacle. But he's going all the way back. He's tying himself to it. said, you don't need that natural bread anymore. I am the bread of life. Anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So worship then, true worship is, is food. That's why we talk about the song. Without it, we're nothing. Without it, we're not even living. Without it, we're walking around with a form of life, but were actually dead men walking. Like the Pharisees who walked around with whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, having the appearance of life, but there's no life there. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answered again to the enemy. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can I tell you, when God starts speaking to you, words of revelation in your ear, it will be more valuable to you than anything you can possibly imagine. It will mean more to you than anything this world will ever give you when God starts speaking revelation to you and showing you things in worship. It really is, man. It's the most beautiful thing in the world and it will drive you for more and more and more. Show us your glory, Lord. And the more we see God, just like the unfathomable universe, we find out it gets bigger and bigger and God gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Just when we think we've touched the bottom of the pool, we find out oh, it goes deeper there's more of God. He is infinitely large and infinitely deep. That's why we'll never get bored in heaven because we'll never run out of God. Right? At His right hand there are pleasures forevermore and His right hand never ends. It's infinitely long. You're not going to get bored in heaven. We're going to exist in an eternal now with eternal pleasures that never run out. Can you imagine? It's never going to get boring. Your emotional center, your intellectual center, your academic center, your central center, everything that God wired you to be will be at peak performance in heaven and it'll never run out. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter but the heart of the king to search it out. So God has concealed all this stuff but those who search will find. And Revelation even speaks of a hidden manna for those that go after. He's a rewarder to them that diligently seek him. Man, doesn't that make you just want to shout? Good gracious, hallelujah. If we do not actively worship, we are not being spiritually fed. That's why, you know, when we come to church, I promise you, brothers and sisters, those four songs are not like some intermission to, so you get in church on time. We don't devote time to worship just as kind of a filler so we can get everybody here for the offering and sermon. It's actually kind of important what happens in worship. It's actually vital that you get here. And so often what happens in worship, I dare say, is, is, is way more important than the sermon you're getting ready to hear. Because, man, it's just vital that you get here. So if you're one of those, and I'm not having anybody in my mind because I sit on the front row so I don't have to look behind me. But if you're one of those people that say, well, church starts at 1030, well, they're just going to sing for the first 45 minutes. I'm just going to show up at 11. I know I'm talking to some of you. <laughs> Maybe you haven't experienced this thing called worship I've talked about. Give it a try. You'll be here 10 minutes early. Number six, I'm going to land the plane. here. You see the, the altar of incense. The altar of incense, which was placed right in front of the veil, which behind the veil was the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God. And the altar of incense speaks to us that worship is access. It sits in between the candlestick and the table right up next to the veil. It once again reminds us that, 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 that Jesus is the only way. It's very significant in the last chapter of Matthew when we see Jesus breathed his last. And at that moment, there was an earthquake and the veil of the temple was torn into, right? And then the Ark of the Covenant was now exposed. That access was granted. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is no one... There is, excuse me. There's one God and one mediator between God and men. The man is Christ Jesus. He is the one that's that's interceding for us. We come to God through Jesus. We've talked about this in the past, and you don't want to get lost in the mechanics of it. It's okay to pray to Jesus. It's okay to talk to Jesus. But really, who we're really talking to is the Father. Everybody kind of get that. I know it's kind of semantics, and you can talk to the Holy Spirit. You can talk to Jesus, but really kind of what's going on there because Jesus is sort of, he sent the Holy Spirit, right? And the, and the Holy Spirit points back to Jesus and who is Jesus pointing to? God, the Father, right? So we're coming to the Father. Now don't walk out of here saying, well, I can't talk to Jesus anymore. I never said that. They're actually a trinity. So if you talk to one, you're talking to all of them. But there's a spiritual reality of what's happening that you get in these kind of passages. We actually have access to God as who we're going to. Not Allah, but Abba. <laughs> we're going to Daddy not necessarily our elder brother, not even necessarily our bridegroom. We're, we're going to the Father, the King, the King of glory. Of course, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's okay to keep talking to Jesus. What's Jesus doing? Hebrews 7, 25. The book of Hebrews is a, really a new covenant and a New Testament understanding of the tabernacle. Those two things go hand in hand. The book of Hebrews is the, is the book in the, in the New Testament that quotes the Old Testament the most. That in the book of Revelation. Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Isn't that awesome? Jesus died for every, every sin, past, present, future. God is so good, isn't he? God is so good. Let's stand together. And I want to... I want you to close your eyes as I just read this, this psalm of worship. You know, we lose a lot in the book of Psalms because in the original language of Hebrew, it's very poetic, musical. But when they translated the Hebrew into English, you sort of lose the musical flair. So we have to read it and can't always sing it. A lot of great musicians have, have taken the psalms and they've turned them into music. But as I read this I'm not gonna sing it, just so you know, but I'm gonna read it, but, but understand that this, this this was a song to the Lord. So shut your eyes with me for a second, just as I read this, and then we'll pray and be done. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So tonight, Lord, we ascribe unto you worth we ascribe unto you worship we ascribe unto you proskuneo we we ascribe unto you the highest form of renown and dignity and worship lord and lord as we do that we are promised then to experience your word lord lord just as Aaron and his sons were anointed on their right ears with the blood. God, so you anoint our ears with the blood of Jesus to hear the voice of God. There's no more separation. So that we as your people, Lord, would come to the place of worship, Lord, that's not built upon music style and song selection. God, forgive me for robbing you of the worship do your name because I didn't like the song. Forgive me, Lord, for robbing you of worship do your name because the music was too loud. Lord, forgive me of that. Lord, cleanse me of such thinking, God. Forgive me of viewing worship as the thing I only do on Sundays. Lord, I pray for All of us today, God, that only by your spirit would grant us a revelation out of this information tonight, Lord. The revelation that only comes through the quickening of your Holy Spirit that would cause us to look in the brazen labor. And we would see things for as they really are. And then as we look down and we and we see the stagnation of stinking thinking, Lord, we would see the air the, the, the of our ways and our posture of looking down into that, into that place of reflection and conviction, then, then we would lift our head up and we would look at a Jesus who breathes on his sons and daughters, the precious Holy Spirit, to bring the revelation and the cleansing that we so desperately need. And that then, Lord, we can run to you. We can run from that labor. We can run straight into the holy place and feast upon the enlightenment from your light, Lord, the sight that we need. We can eat the things that you give us, Lord, and be truly satisfied and enjoy your presence forevermore Lord. and become people that you're actually looking for, who worship you, not on this mountain or that mountain, not in that style, that form, but who worship you in the spirit and in truth. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name, and all of us sit together. Amen. God bless you.